Welcome to Talk Tennis, a podcast created specifically for you, the tennis fanatic. Join us each week as we work to elevate your game both on and off the court. We will deliver fresh episodes to keep you up to date with tennis trends and technologies, as well as exclusive interviews with industry experts, current and former pros, and so much more. Here's your host, Michelle. Welcome to Talk Tennis. We're here at the Templeton Tennis Ranch for a 60K ITF, and I am here with Brian Early today. Uh, we're super excited to have him. Now, obviously a podcast, you don't have video, but I feel like most of our listeners would recognize your face if they did see you, because you have been in the industry, on the court, helping out behind the scenes, doing a lot of the hard work as an official for tennis. So could you explain exactly what your role has been through your career? Yeah, I, I started in 1979. I was kind of an intern learning about satellite tennis, it was called okay, back then. Yeah. That's what, that's what entry-level developmental professional tennis was called in 1979. And uh, the year before, I had, been, I had been involved in a tennis tournament that was that level. Uh, on a local basis, I was working at a club where one of these tournaments came through, and I thought, you know, this would be something that I might like to do. And so I got a hold of the organizers. Uh, at that time, uh, it was Penn Athletic, Penn okay. Tennis Balls, right. and so on. Um, it was the USTA Penn Circuit in 1979. Okay. First year USTA was involved, and Penn was involved, and they had a partnership. And I was managing a club in the summer, not a club, but a public facility in Pittsburgh in the summer. And the, the president of, of Penn Athletic lived, lived in the area. Okay. And so I said, oh, well, who do I call? And, yeah. you know, and he put me in touch with a guy named Larry Turville, who's still around, actually still playing senior events oh, nice. in his, into his 70s. And he offered me a job as kind of an, I'll call it an intern for lack of a better okay. word, uh, working six weeks of satellite tennis in Florida. And the first tournament had a 128 draw qualifying and a 32 main draw. And uh, it was won by a young man who had to have a wild card to get into the qualifying. So he won five matches in qualifying and wow. five matches in the main draw. And his name was Andres Gomez, okay. who went on to have a <laughs> good pretty career. good career. So, <laughs> yeah. so uh, that was my first, uh, that was my baptism. Okay. And gradually I started getting uh, the developmental professional tennis you know, challengers and satellites and which became futures later, started gaining some traction and there were more and more of them and they needed people to be the referee slash what they called the tour director back then, now called supervisor, okay. uh, to, to help run these events, make sure that the rules were consistently applied across uh, tournaments. And uh, so they would send us out and we would do four or five weeks at a time. And pretty much you learn the ropes that way. It's baptism by fire, like I said, it <laughs> yeah. really is. And back then we didn't even have a book. Oh my there, was, there, was a, <laughs> there was some general rules that you followed, but uh, there was no book of exactly either how to do this or even the rules was sometimes we'd, we'd make notes every day. We'd meet at the end of the day and say, okay, what happened today that we could learn from? Yeah. And eventually that became the uh, satellite and Futures uh, Rulebook. Oh, cool. So it was a fun, fun time for me. And uh, I still run into players that I had back then. I ran into Andres Gomez about six weeks ago, oh, and we awesome. had just an, a nice chat about uh, back in the old days. And, uh, cool. you know, those are relationships that you keep for the rest of your life and you value them. 
For sure. Now, we actually wanted to talk a little bit about um, kind of how you become an official for an organization like the USTA or how that even begins, because a lot of our listeners might understand that as a tennis player, you start at a certain level and you work your way through the ITFs or get onto the WTA, the ATP. But what does it look like for an official? It's essentially the same. It's really? very, okay. very much <laughs> the same. And we talked. We talk about this for twenty years. I was the director of the USGA Pro Circuit, right. along with my officiating career. I had a career as an administrator for the USTA, and uh, and these tournaments were under the umbrella of the USGA Pro Circuit, and I was the director. And as, as soon as I took over, I went to the person who was just then hired as the director of officiating, okay. Rich Kaufman is his name. And uh, Rich and I got together and said, okay, look, we can benefit, you know, each, these are, these, these are complementary programs. Right. And uh, so when he would hold a class with young officials, uh, say young officials, new officials, mm -hmm. and he would have a couple out of that group and he would say, hey, I'd like you to go out and work some USJ Pro Circuit events and uh, get the experience you need. And as you get better, I can get you into the higher level of tournaments. And you know, you would start doing the satellites of the futures, and then you would do challengers, okay. and then you would be seen by you know a, a high-ranking official who might recommend you to uh, an ATP or a WTA event, and and eventually work your way up to the U.S. Open. Nice, that's really cool. Now, would you say the life is a little glamorous, or not so much? No, it's certainly not. <laughs> glamorous is not the word no. I use. Okay. But, Look, there's something very, very exciting mm -hmm. about it being involved in a professional sport at any level. Yeah. And uh, especially for me, when I was first starting, I, I had so much in common with these players because my career was just starting and mm -hmm. I was just trying to move up to the challengers and yeah, then to the, really end cool. of the yeah. ATP tour and then to the grand slams. And I could see they were doing the same thing. And it was really a great time for me. And uh, uh, I've just been lucky enough to have a great career that, that yeah. started there. Well, and we're seeing you now in Templeton, obviously a much smaller tournament than you used to be more comfortable at. So what's drawn you back to the lower level? Well, I, I was um, the USTA Pro Circuit moved at my recommendation, by the way, <laughs> to Florida, to, uh -huh, the, to yep. the Lake Nona, because there is, there is so much that the Pro Circuit does that is related to player development. Mm -hmm. And when I had heard that player development was gonna build this new facility in Lake Nona, mm -hmm. I went to the people in charge, uh, Andrea Hirsch, who was, the, the, who was handling the transition for the USTA. I went to her and said, look, Andrea, I said, my, my wife will kill me for saying this, <laughs> but I think the pro circuit should move to Lake Nona with the player development so that we can get the most out of that relationship. Yeah. And she said, you know, that's not a bad idea. And she started the discussion and Patrick McEnroe was head of player development at the time. And he said, you know, that's a great idea. And I had a great relationship with Patrick. And, okay. and uh, then when it came down to actually making the move, my wife said, you know, it's not really, really where I want to. And, and she was right. I mean, we're at the end of, I'm at the end of my career. Right. I, 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 I will be retiring completely in a few years. And so I, I declined the move and was happy enough just to go back and and do what I really love. I yeah. mean, and, and that's be a, uh, a referee, a supervisor at, uh, at any level. And I mean, I'm the referee for the uh, U.S. Men's Clay Court Championships. Nice. I've done that for 30 years, and I, I'm the referee in Atlanta for the 
okay. the tour event down nice. there and, and Long Island, yeah. and New York Open. Yeah. And, you know, I do this and I don't have to do it full time. Right. And you can pick and choose where I want to go. And I was in Kaohsiung, Taiwan last week. And strange enough, I had been there before working at Davis Cup. So, I mean, I, like I said, I've been lucky enough that I can pretty much choose where I want to work and uh, the amount that I want to work. That's awesome. Now, talk about a rough day at the office for you. It can't always be easy to be out there. No, no, it can't be. And there are any number of things that can make it tough. Yeah. One thing is rain. Same as the US Open. (laughs) I mean, you know, I, I, I think your listeners should know that, yes, we have two roofs at the US Open. Yes. But we have... 16 Lots courts. Of going on. <laughs> so, so if you've got 16 courts going yeah. and it rains, Not the whole rain dive. thing <laughs> is, it sometimes makes decision making harder. Yeah. But so at this level, just like any other level, rain causes a lot of pressure, not just on the officials, but on the players as well. For sure. And, uh, and then you have to make decisions about doubling up players, whether you're going to double them up, whether you, hey, you're going to move inside. Maybe you don't have the option of moving inside. Maybe you have to double them up later, or maybe then you have to prioritize whether you're going to play uh, a singles and two doubles or two singles and a doubles in a day. Because mm-hmm. a player can't play more than three matches. And so weather really does play a, a part. Definitely. Uh, behavior can be d- difficult. Yes. I mean, you're just like any level, you're dealing with players who are people and they're competitors and uh, they are sometimes dealing with in- inexperienced officials who, as we mentioned before, For were sure. learning as well. Yeah. And so players are learning the rules, and the officials are, are getting accustomed to dealing with professional tennis players, and sometimes that doesn't work as well as we'd like it to. Yeah. And we do our best to settle those and making it a learning experience for both. Okay, now I would assume you are also a tennis player? Uh, but, so you know, much. I grew up, I was, there was nobody played tennis in my community when I was a little <laughs> kid. I always thought that was really fun. And my sister used to go to the swim club and my mother would take her and take me along and say, go swimming. And yeah. I didn't like swimming, <laughs> yeah. but there were tennis courts at the bottom uh-huh. of the hill that were part of the swim club. So I would go down and I'd hit against the wall nice. and, you know, I yeah. didn't really have any formal trainings, but... Uh, if you try hard enough, you'll find a tennis court somewhere exactly. and you'll find somebody to play with. So I, I didn't really start playing much until I was in my middle teens and my high school didn't have a team or anything like okay. that. So I didn't play much uh, when I was growing up. I played a little bit though. I played a couple months a year and yeah. played as much as I could. And, and um, when the community that I lived in finally bought into the whole tennis thing. <laughs> Not tennis um, trend. Uh, they knew that I was seemed to be the only guy yeah. in town who, or the person in town who played tennis. So the guy who was head of Parks and Recreation uh, was a couple of years ahead of me in high school, and he remembered that I was a tennis player. And he called me up and said, "Would you like to run these six courts that we just built?" Oh wow! As a summer job, as I was in in college, and uh, I said, "Sure." And gradually, I kept getting offered better and better positions. And uh, as part of running a facility particularly a big facility you uh host tournaments yeah you pr- you're promoting your your facility and and making it the place for a high level of tennis yeah definitely. and so i would host tournaments and you know nobody really knew the rules and somebody <laughs> would have to default somebody if they came late or <laughs> misbehaved or something so i, I kind of learned all of that 
and I took a couple of courses in officiating and okay. uh, learned how to be an official, how to make decisions and uh, and use the rule book. Nice. And you've made a lot of changes for the better in your position. I did a little research and found out you were one of the people that was instrumental in getting a female official for a Grand Slam men's final. Yes. Yeah, so maybe you can talk about some of your proudest moments in your role. Yeah, that would be that, that, would, would, be, that, that would be one, be of, one them. of them. Yeah, <laughs> I, sure. I would say yeah. if if there were a defining mm-hmm. moment, that would be it for okay. me. Um, I was part of the first U.S. Open Court Color Committee. Okay. I had recommended that they go to two different colors. Okay. And uh, it it went right along with high definition television. Right. And I thought that that might be a nice thing to yeah. to introduce. Um, it was funny because. The first committee we put together at the USTA, we fell flat in its face. <laughs> they, they, we, we, we did all this work and recommended two different color schemes. Yeah. And the people in charge said, oh, no, we like what we have. Okay, yeah. And so, okay, well, and then uh, a new kind of regime, a new group of leaders took over and um, they said, well, what can we do to shake this up a little bit? <laughs> and uh, those of us who had sat on that committee said, I have an idea. Hey, <laughs> we, we did a lot of work on this. And, yeah, let's uh, try this again. You know, and uh, so I didn't sit on that committee, yeah. but I was very much aware because I was the referee, the U.S. Open referee at the time and was brought into the process here and there. I wasn't as involved as I was the first time around, but for me, it wasn't important what the colors were. Right. It was important that you had two different colors. Right. They look good. And it worked and for it, the players. And it was something that set the U.S. Open apart. Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. Now, you must be amongst your friends, like the calm, cool, collected guy that everyone goes to advice for, because I feel like you've got such a great calming personality and you're able to think under pressure and make the right decisions. And I'm also curious, when you've had a rough day, do you go home and just let it go? Or is it eating up at you? Are you replaying it in yeah, your head? I, I, I probably internalize it a little much. A little. But, <laughs> I will tell you, though, that those moments are fewer and fewer That's good. the longer you do it. I remember when I did my first U.S. Open as the tournament referee. Right. I had been on the U.S. Open staff for 12 years. Okay. And then I had been working all of these futures and challengers. Right. I'd worked out in the field. Lots and, of experience. And, and somebody said to me before I actually started that, that tournament that year, what are you going to feel like when it when you go out there and there's 15,000 people out there? This is when we were back in Louis Armstrong as mm-hmm. our main court. And I said, you know, I'm a little concerned. Sure, I <laughs> am a little, I have some misgivings about it. Yeah. Sure. I, yeah. You, know, you don't know how, how you're going to react. And I remember when I went out the first time and I came off the court, I, it was a simple, very straightforward decision I had to make and made it, walked off. And somebody said to me, hey, you were out there and making that decision. You look pretty calm. And I thought, <laughs> and I said to him, I said, you know, the court is still, you know, 36 by 78. And, mm-hmm. and the umpire still sits in the same place looking down. And the players are still in your face, right. just like they were. And, and you don't even notice. You don't hear the people. Yeah. It's just something that you've done for... You're in the zone. At this point. It's well, just... I don't know if you... Okay, that, that's <laughs> a nice make, way of putting it. I like that. We can make a comparison. Yeah, but, but no, you're... you're you're in your element. Yeah, you're, you're, you're doing done, your thing. You're doing you the know, same thing yeah. you've been doing for 13 yeah. years. And now for me, you know, 40 years. This is my yeah. 40th year as, as an official. And and you do that enough times. And <laughs> those things that happen that you mentioned that you would normally in the past taken home with you yeah. and would have affected your sleep and your right. relationship with your wife <laughs> and all of that, <laughs> that those, don't, those don't bother you anymore. Okay. Because you've, 
you had context for it, you had precedent for it, you made a decision that you made and yeah. that was the end of it. Yeah. But yes, early on that, that, that <laughs> I it, was you wondering did, about you that. did struggle with that and right? go, oh crap, I, maybe I've ruined this guy's <laughs> right? career. <Yeah. laughs> oh gosh, that's funny. What is one of the worst memories or experiences you had, if you can talk about it? And then we'll want to hear the best too. We'll start with the bad. It was well known at the time, decision that I made, and I really <laughs> sprang it on the U.S. Open folks when I had uh, David Ferrer and, and Andy Roddick out on, on Louis Armstrong, and they had been waiting all morning to get on court, and uh, I had a deputy referee down on court, mm -hmm. and she kept calling me and saying, oh, yeah, we'll be another 10 minutes or so, this one little ribbon of water just keeps coming up, and we'll get it, we'll get it dried, and so I kept calling her back and calling her back. And, yeah. And it just wasn't drying. Oh, no. And it was, it was driving everybody crazy. Yeah. And uh, I said, okay, I'm going to go down myself. Because <laughs> it's been two hours now. And Andy and, and David, are, they're ready to play. They're ready, yeah. So I went down and I said, Jesus, wow, I don't know, I don't know how to tell everybody. Because anyone else, I say anyone, <laughs> anyone who is not an official or, or doesn't have a lot of experience in tennis uh, is going to say, oh, this court's fine. Yeah. But I didn't think they would feel that right. way. And so I like to, when I can, involve players in the decisions that affect them as much as they affect right. the rest of the U.S. Open Definitely. or the rest of the tournament, whatever I'm working. Yeah. And if they can be involved in the decision, then there's an ownership that they take right. and that they feel. And that gives them a much better feeling. If you just tell them what to do. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you, you're not going to get a good yeah, response. for sure. Okay. And the next time you need them to do something, no. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so the two of them came out and Andy famously went a little, not crazy, I won't say that, but he was a little unhappy that we had brought him all the way out there. But I explained to him, I said, look, I said, you don't have to play here. Yeah. I said, I said, I just wanted you to take a look, right. see what we're dealing with, why we've been holding you up back in the locker room right. for two hours. If you want to wait until court 17 is available, it won't be for another hour and a half. Or I do have a very small court. There are not a lot of people on the grounds right now, but... You'll pack it. Yeah, you can, we'll, we'll figure it out. Yeah. He said, and David first said, I want to play. Yeah. Andy said, I want to play. Okay. So I, so I told the facilities and the TV folks, that we're going out to court 13. Oh, no. And they... Nobody was happy, and security was particularly unhappy. <laughs> but but at the same time, when they got out there and they played, it was crazy fun. That's awesome. And uh, do you remember that? I do. I what I was gonna say. I bet anyone that had a grounds pass that day was yeah. Anybody who had <laughs> a grounds pass that day probably couldn't get on to court thirteen. <laughs> yeah. But it was Andy came in afterwards and he said. Juice, thanks. That was really, it was really cool oh, out there. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And and you don't hear, you know, you hear players are grousing all the time. Right. You don't you don't hear <laughs> when they're when they're very nice and they, you know, they say th say nice things. And I had a situation with um, a couple of guys who came in to the office, uh, the referee's office, and it was on a one of these days that it's kind of misty, mm -hmm. and we had put them out and they had come back in and after two games or something and they said. Why are you making us play? <laughs> and uh, in the in the rain, is it is it because of the TV contracts and all the money that you oh would gosh. lose if we didn't? Yeah. And I explained to him. I said, 40, I could send you out right now. Yeah. And in two minutes, it would be unplayable. But I sent you out. It was playable. Right. You need to communicate because 
if we make you play and you are completely distracted you, and had a, had a colleague who used to say, if their players are paying more attention to the weather than they are to the tennis, you won't have a good outcome. Right. And I explained that to them and they, and you know, they were, they were very nice and said, you know, you're right. We could initiative. have taken a little yeah. more initiative and said, I'd like to see the referee. I'd like to see the supervisor. Can you come out? Because I don't feel comfortable safe. Right. And I'm feeling I'm risking my career playing out here. And the three guys who had come in were three of the top players in the world. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay <And> those three. <laughs> all, all three of them, they went and the TV ambushed them. And all three of them said, we went to the referee. We didn't like that we were sent out, but at the same time, we understood why and and we were satisfied. That's cool. At that point. And yeah. that, that makes you feel really good. It does, and so, yeah. you know, they somebody gives you kind of it, it, not a pat on the back, trust no. me. But <laughs> at the same time says they respected your yeah. the discussion that you had and that it was For frank sure. and and, uh, and helpful. That's really cool. Now are there any other special moments that you really remember special relationships with players? I'm sure you guys also have a bit of a relationship off the court with some of these players possibly. No. You know, it was funny when I was first starting. Mm -hmm. I got to meet, deal with little kids. Yeah. You know, yeah. little kids like Andre Agassi, Mark Knowles, yeah. Jim Courier, you know, 15 years, yeah. 16 years old. And those guys, when you see them, they still remember those moments. Oh, I'm sure. More than they remember interacting with you at the US Open. Right. Oh, that's crazy. You know, <laughs> I mean, like Andre Agassi. Uh, I have a, a, a funny relationship with Gil Reyes. Okay. And when, and when Andre was playing, I think it was his last French Open. I went to a restaurant and Andre was sitting at the table next to us and Gil came over and we were laughing and talking. We, yeah. we send each other notes about old songs and who was, <laughs> who was the performer of this song and what year was it and all nice. that. And so we'll, we'll test each other. And while we were doing that, I, I leaned over to him and I whispered and I said, you need to ask, in a quiet moment, you need to ask Andre about a match he played against <laughs> Barry Moyer at the Montana Tennis Club oh in, I want to say 1986 or five, something like <laughs> that. And Andre overheard it. Oh no. And I, and he said, yeah, that third set tie break, that was, you know, and both these guys were ranked 400 in the world or whatever. Right, and yeah. this is the first or second round of a satellite tournament so and he he went through every point of, of the tie break yeah i mean this is a, this was a match that caught fire during the match they were calling their own lines too okay. this was oh yeah and, it was, <laughs> and and both these guys had huge forehands and andre was probably 16 15 or 16 oh and barry was 19 or 18 or 19 yeah and both these guys had reputations and two of the biggest forehands and as the match went on the players were hearing, this is good tennis out there, you need to come up. And all the players were circling the court oh, cool. by the end of the match. And Andre remembers, if I'm to believe him, because I don't remember <laughs> the match that well. Yeah. yeah if I'm to, to believe him, he remembered every point of that tiebreak. That's really Which he cool. won, by the way. So anyway, it was, uh, that, those are kind of special those moments. Those are you really know, you, fun. You run, in, run into that, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Now, is there anything that, if you could tell the players on tour, anything from your perspective, like just, hey, you know, this would make our lives easier if you just knew this or, you know, like even just you explaining how officials are kind of going through their ranks as the players yeah, are. That's yeah, a really I, there's cool There's one thing, thing I'd, I'd, I'd like to tell yeah. players. If you have a request or you 
are unhappy about something, don't send in your agent. Don't send in your manager. Come in yourself. Yeah. That way I understand and appreciate where you're coming from. Because in our business as supervisors and especially at the higher levels, right. and I don't have to deal with it, fortunately, at, at this level right. quite as much, but at the U.S. Open especially, we would see the agent or the manager mm -hmm. who would come in and purport to know what the player wanted. And you would find out Later, player had no idea that oh, this, this agent or manager was coming in and yeah. requesting this because you'd be having a conversation with them later and say, well, why did you want to play such and such and such and such? <laughs> I don't remember that. I don't remember having that conversation. Yeah. Well, that's what we were told that you wanted to do. And, you know, why did you want a Tuesday start? And you find out later it was because the agent or the manager thought that you might want that and wanted to be able to say, I, you know. I did this for you. I did this for you, <laughs> yes. And in the final analysis, it's the player who was affected and it's the referee and the tournament organization making the decision. So why don't we, the two of us. Work together. <coughs> work together. Exactly. And, and you will understand why the decision was made. You may not agree with it. Yeah. And there's another thing that I think is very important I learned over the years is that if you make a decision that has a chance of not going over well, it's a very important part of, of being a good referee is that you bring the players, if you can, if mm -hmm. it's practical and, and workable, into the decision-making process and say, look, it may not end up being the way you want it to. I'm not asking you to make a decision for us, but I am asking your opinion. So that can at least be part of the decision-making process right. that I'm going through. That's a good life lesson, actually, yeah. I think. Yeah, that works sure. well in every yeah. way. And then I did want to ask real quick about coaching on the WTA. So we've started to see that evolve a little bit. And the U.S. Open qualifying this year had the ability for the coaches to talk directly to the players. Mm -hmm. And then um, on the WTA, we're seeing the coaches are allowed to be called out a certain amount of times per set and work were the coaches. However, we're still not seeing it in the Grand Slams. Mm -hmm. So is there, do you think that that's going to evolve to something that we see more of, or can you speak uh, on that? I, I, that seems to be the way it's headed. Yeah. I, I, and do we, do you think we're going to see it on the ATP at all? Do you think people are enjoying it? Or? I, 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 you'd have to ask Gail Bradshaw, who's <laughs> the vice president of rules and competition for okay. the ATP tour. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think eventually that you'll see it on uh, more or less a limited basis. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just a guess. I, I don't. I don't have any inside information. I mean, there's uh, there's any number of ways to do it. Right. You could You could just say, okay, we're going to allow hand signals like they do in baseball. Right. And let the commentators and the players and we'll everyone <laughs> speculate. Oh yeah, what does that five <laughs> bananas on the on the deck there mean? You yeah. remember that yeah. uh, that thing with? I mean. The poor chair umpires are, are in a bad spot when, when it comes to hand signals because yeah. they're just guessing. Yeah. And, and, you know, maybe they could allow something like that or maybe they could allow the kind of conversations that you saw at the U.S. Open in the qualifying the last couple of years. I mean, uh, uh, that's all part of the game moving forward mm -hmm. and, and kind of like the shot clock or the serve clock. Right, yeah. That's it. That was inevitable. Yeah. And I think the serve clock was really late coming. It should have been around a long time ago. Right. And there were various constituencies who were holding it up. But in the final analysis, how do you penalize a player for something that he can't see or touch or know? Right. You expect that each one of them to carry a, a stopwatch? <laughs> yeah. So the remedy is to put the stopwatch that everybody's using. Yes. That the chair umpire's using. Yes. 
and that the player has player. access to. Yeah, right you put or it right wrong. there and you say, okay, you play by this. Yeah. Okay, you don't, oh yeah, you're taking too much time. And then there would be soft warnings and then that would set up little contentious situations with the players. Well, why are you giving me a soft warning for, you know, for something when I have no idea right. what 20 seconds or 25 seconds is? When, yeah. when, when is that? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, and now, exactly. And now those, those numbers are out there and you can see them. And you say, okay, I knew what I was playing. Right. I knew the rules by which I was being judged. Exactly, yeah. So, yeah For sure. Good. Well, do you have any other stories you'd like to share with our listeners? <sighs> any other stories? I feel like we could, yeah, just <laughs> go through the years and get a good one from each player. <laughs> well, you, you know, I, and, um, people ask me all the time, well, what has been the biggest change over 40 years? Yeah. And, and, I, and I immediately say, the caliber of the women's game has, oh that has That's changed crazy. so dramatically yes. in 40 years since I started doing this. I mean, the game has little or no resemblance to what it did in, in 1980. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's, it's nothing like that anymore. Right. I think, I think my, my favorite U.S. Open memory is the opening night, the act would typically come on Sunday mm-hmm. before the Monday. Mm-hmm. And rehearse and sometimes they could come and sometimes they couldn't come and Whitney Houston showed up okay on the first night of the Arthur Ashe Stadium okay the opening, opening yeah so the night before and she, she was famous for not showing up for gigs. <laughs> I mean you know and she came and sang one moment in time okay and it was Breathtaking. Really? And that's probably my favorite that's U.S. Crazy. Open moment. And it's not even a tennis It's not moment. even tennis. And yeah, you've probably I mean, seen so many performers, actually, oh yeah, now that yeah, you speak like, about you know, that. You know, Gladys Knight that's used so to go cool. around and pip everybody. You know, they would, she would kid oh, about it. You know, she was a very, very nice person. Look, they're all, most of these, most of these performers are just really down-to-earth kind that's of people. Cool. That, kind of like the players? Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. But see, there's a kind of a theory that I have that... Mm-hmm. Players, when they're young and they have success early, yeah. they can be difficult. What I have seen happen is when they have a, either an injury or basically fall off the face of the earth for mm-hmm. some reason, yeah. and then they come back. It's not just a humility that they gain. It's an appreciation for what they had. Yeah. And not suddenly, but they become different people. They approach it differently. There is an appreciation for what, what it is and I never had much to do with Juan Martin Del Potro. Mm-hmm. I didn't know him at all, but I, I will say that when he came back from his many, many injuries and the U.S. Open gave him a wild card, mm-hmm. he did not miss a post-match interview without saying, I really appreciate what the U.S. Open did for me. That's cool. And this is, this is really important to me, and thank you. That's really cool. And that was, you know, you say, wow. That's that really means something. You know, that was very meaningful. Yeah. yeah, that's really cool. Okay, last question, because I feel like you've traveled the world. You probably have done all these things. Is there anywhere on your bucket list that you want to go visit, not for work? Yeah, I'd like to go to Machu Picchu. Okay. Probably, probably like to do that. That's cool. Um, and my favorite place has always been Hawaii. I've been, oh, but I was I lucky, lucky enough to work satellite tournaments there. We'd do four islands oh, in cool. five weeks. And, that's awesome. you know, you know, and so that's definitely crossed off my bucket list, okay. but I'd go back again. Yes, I know there's I mean, a challenger that, out there too. That's my favorite place. 
and I have been to Peru twice and, and nice. didn't get a chance to go up to Machu Picchu. Okay. And, uh, and my wife and I would like to go up there. That would be amazing. That would be, that would be on my bucket list. Um, I, I can't think of anything else. We've been to Australia many times. I'm sure. <laughs> I worked 25 French Opens and 25 Wimbledons. And, and so. Do you have a favorite Grand Slam? No. Okay. No, no. <laughs> not that I, not that not I tell that you. you. Can, I was no. saying, not that you can no, publicly say. Yeah, it, it, was, it was always hard for me at the U.S. Open because I was always exhausted by the oh, time. Oh, yeah, that's work. You're, you're, well, when you think about it, it's, uh, you're, you're there. Uh, the, the main draw starts on a Monday, and you've been there for... 10 days already yeah. setting up for the 128 draw qualifying <laughs> and staying there late at night. And then all of a sudden, oh yeah, the tournament starts tomorrow. And you go, wait a minute, wait. I've, been, I've been here 10 days and I'm, I'm tired as can be. That's you so know. funny. So, but uh, yeah. Well, I feel like we could talk to you for hours. You have so many great stories and it's such a pleasure. Very nice to talk to you and meet you. And thank you so well, much for joining us. Thank you, Michelle. That's um, been, it's been fun. It was awesome. Thank right. you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's Talk Tennis episode. Do us a favor and subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you'd like to let us know who you'd like to hear from next or what questions we can answer for you on one of our future episodes, let us know in the comments or reach out to us on email at podcast at tennis-warehouse.com. And until next time, happy hitting. Happy hitting.